0: This is Your Field is Our Office. I'm field agronomist for Southern Minnesota, Ashley Storby, and joining me is my neighbor to the north, field agronomist Jay Zilski. Jay, how are you this morning?
1: I am doing absolutely fantastic, Ashley. I mean, it's hard to complain. Here we are the uh, first week of December, and it's going to be close to 50 degrees and beautiful weather. And, you know, there's only two things that are unfortunate about that is for us poor seed guys our sales reps are trying to get people to sit down and finalize their seed buying decisions ahead of our our deadline here or with this deadline you know folks are out doing stuff out in the field tiling and some of those other things we certainly understand and appreciate that and and you know the other thing and it has me a little bit nervous about this weather ashley is that uh, my wife and i are, are having our daughter and our grandsons from Arizona come up to Minnesota for Christmas, and we've got all this buildup about having snow oh, for Christmas oh, no. and all these things we want to do with the boys, and we don't have any snow. Oh, so we better hope over the next uh, two and a half weeks here that we uh, get an accumulation of snow so we can uh, show those boys from Arizona what uh, Minnesota winter really looks like. Oh, Ashley. The so, pressure's
0: on, Jay.
1: <laughs> absolutely, but <laughs> Ashley, on on your side of things, I, I understand from what I've seen on Facebook, it looks like the year two of wrestling for for your son has taken place, huh?
0: It has. And, and I'd love to tell a a quick story that is, is a a learning development for me as a parent. I've been filming his wrestling matches for my dad um, because my dad is, you know, five, five, six hours away. um, So can't pop in on a, on a wrestling tournament easily. So I've been filming those uh, matches and At the time of filming this last match that I watched, I thought, oh, my gosh, that other kid, boy, he keeps choking my son. And I was I was a little crabby about it. And then I go back and watch the video. And real time, I was very much thinking my son was doing everything right. And then as I watched the video before I sent it to my dad realize my son was doing plenty of choking as well so it just was a really powerful lesson for me in perception of we always think your you know, kids are perfect and then and then I was humbled by that so that's been my development so far I,
1: I, I see Ashley I, I thought it was going to be something about the fact that you were shouting and screaming or something like that and it was hard <laughs> to hear over that and you know I think for, for for some folks here, they may find it hard to believe. I did I did get quite excited once when one of my one of my kids was playing basketball in over Rochester and uh, embarrassed my entire family when the referee um stopped play and incited me in in the audience. And from then on, um <laughs> I, I was pretty much mute at any of the uh basketball events. <laughs> so anyhow, we should Ashley, I suppose, what should we, should we get rolling here? You think? We got to
0: keep moving. So we're on the second recording of our agronomy top 10 for 2023. But before we continue on to the top 10 agronomy observations that we'll share, we should reflect upon what 10 through eight was. Can you give us an overview, Jay?
1: Absolutely, Ashley. And I'll just give a quick overview. So as a teaser, so if somebody didn't catch the last, episode, episode 53, um, they can go back and listen to it. But at number 10, you know, there was a lot of hype and hoopla coming into the year and a lot of angst and anxiety about tar spot and corn based on everything that had been seen a year ago. And, you know, this year, at least in southern Minnesota, was pretty much a a no-show. And and if you listen to that last episode, you can hear about, you know, the role that environment plays in um, tar spot occurrence and say, you know, The good news is that we didn't see much tar spot this past year. The bad news was the fact that we need moisture in order to have tar spot, and the fact that we had a drought (laughs) kind of nixed some of of those things with regard to tar spot. But you can hear more about that if you listen to uh, our last episode. Number nine on the list, kind of similar to tar spot as as a relative no-show, except Ashley was... You know, either fortunate enough or unfortunate enough that in portions of her area, there actually was some white mold. And, you know, that goes back to uh, those folks, if I remember right, Ashley was some of those folks down in and around that Blue Earth area and such where they hooked some rains. You know, the good mm-hmm. news was they hooked some rain, so they had some really good bean yields. But also in some situations, if I remember right, either you mentioned it on the podcast last week or you just shared it with me offline about where somebody had gone in and interplanted some beans um into a reduced stand, and where you know those those inner plants kind of crossed over there was a decent stand. lo and behold, you got some white mold. And so uh, again, you know it's another one of those things that return to more normal conditions. White mold might rear its ugly head up again uh, this coming year. And then we got down to number eight. And you know so much of the everything we see this year, experience this past season revolves around the essentially the dry weather uh, and in in the drought and so we spent some time talking about a nutrient management and nutrient availability and the impacts that drought has on positional availability of nitrogen but then also uh, potassium and the role that uh, potassium has in mitigating some of the impacts of, of drought stress so you know lest I go into any additional detail and eliminate a need for you to listen to last week's podcast, <laughs> just encourage you to, to check in on, on episode 53. So, um, Ashley, Jay, uh, yes,
0: that's only 10 through eight. And, and that was so much, so much depth of, of what has been experienced this season. But as Jay and I reflected upon the season, there were other events or observations that we found to be even more remarkable for the season. So we'll move on to those today. And so, number seven, then, would be planting into cool soils. Jay, I'll let you share your observations on that first.
1: Well,, <clears throat> Ashley, I certainly will. you know it's it's interesting because every spring, people agonize over, okay, you know should or shouldn't we go? And uh, certainly we hit, we hit that crop insurance deadline in the month of April. And, uh, you know, our guidance as as agronomists always is, you know, if conditions are fit, um, by all means, seize those opportunities and go ahead. And I think one of the things that I found interesting, Ashley, is that if if we look at this past year, so that that week of April 12th, um, you know, there was a lot of anxiety. uh, You know, temperatures were warm. We had temperatures in the 80s, highs in the 80s. Overnight lows in the fifties. But there was some discussion that over the following weekend, we were going to get a, a dip in the temperatures. Um, and you know, for people that called me, I was looking at the um, both the air temperatures and the soil temperatures. We're that time at that time we had some temperatures in the seventies for high temperatures in the soils and lows down in the forties. And for people that were asking me, I was giving them the green flag to go if fields were, were fit. And, you know, there's always the discussion of chilling injury. And uh, we always know it after the fact, we talked about that this spring. And generally what I saw, um, you know, those fields fared reasonably well. I didn't see any outbreaks of chilling type injury Were stands perhaps off a little bit. Uh, Yes. Uh, I think the the interesting part of it is then you know and some of this is kind of the psychology where two weeks later the week of the first of may a lot of guys went out got planting. okay um the if you look at the some of the soil temperatures they were actually cooler than they were back in mid-april but everybody was going at the field and and you know it's it's I get it. It's a little bit of the psychology. When you get to the first of May, you need to get rolling. But I, I found it ironic that guys that planted the first week, there was actually colder soil conditions at that time than when folks were actually holding off on planting in in mid-April. And, mm-hmm. and yet I think one of the biggest factors I saw this year, Ashley, was then we had in portions of the area those heavy rains that resulted in, in some replanting and you know heavy rains saturated soils regardless of planting date i don't know that they fared any differently than one another and mm-hmm. one of the things I, I always say um every year is in my career every year there's a worse day or series of days to have planted corn or soybeans and you never really know till after the fact it's not always the same dates. It's not always the <laughs> earliest corn. It's not a really you know, always that the the May planted corn. And and some folks joke with me because I always I always say if there were a date based on my experience, days or two days not to plant planted corn, it's usually the sixth or seventh of May, as I look over time. And that doesn't mean I'm telling guys, don't plant on the sixth or seventh, but just I mean, it's easier for me to remember because May 7th is my birthday. So it's always for, easy for me to remember, you know, how much corn happened to get planted at that time, Ashley. <laughs> but, uh, you know, curious about your thoughts and then also, uh, you know, some of the things we saw uh, with uh, with replant as well.
0: Yeah. Oh, this has been the planting into cool soils conversation has been one of the most impactful parts of the season for me from a a learning perspective and largely i think back to i started working with pioneer in 2018 so after you'd already logged like a couple decades with pioneer thanks ashley (laughs) you know just relatively speaking and i had worked for for two other seed companies before that and but but really had a had has I've really accumulated a lot of experience within the Pioneer brand, as one would expect, as we emphasize, you know, keeping sharp on our ground I meat on that. Um, and something that I've noted that I suspect you have seen in a greater degree, Jay, over time, is we have a greater quantity of hybrids that we are comfortable with planting into those more adverse conditions. And I remember early in my career, which you know that would have been 2013 2014 um as i was just learning the the seed industry i experienced more um calls of uh, challenging stand establishment under adverse conditions and i i experienced less of those at least for our own brand so i think it's really reflective of how the industry has caught up to the needs of the early planting and as farmers understand the earlier that we plant the greater yield potential we have and i i really feel as though we have tools to help farmers accommodate that need should they choose to plant into soils that you know from a moisture perspective they're fine but they're very cool and you know this year You noted that temperature trend, and I'm looking at probably the same graph that you are, or that you referenced from um, the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Wasika. and when, as they track 2- and 4-inch temperatures, that plummet after April 14th, the plummet allowed us to spend about 10 days below 46 degrees um, at those 2- and 4-inch soil temperatures, but then several of those days were below 40. So we had a a real-time stress test and I we had a lot of not, you know, we had a good chunk of pioneer corn planted that I was able to check in on and, and take observations on. And I I will go into 2024 with more confidence in planting in those conditions than I did in 2023. That said, hybrid selection for those conditions is still important. And I did walk other brand brand products that whether it was the hybrid or just the the inherent. Condition that they were in that, that had challenges, but I'm really confident in our brand and, and meeting that need, Jay.
1: Well, Ashley, and I think you you mentioned oh, you know when you started, and then you know the number of years that I have been with the with, with Pioneer. And I think the thing is this, though, Ashley. If I look back to the beginning of my career back back to 31 years ago, uh, the uh, The advancements in breeding and our ability to characterize products as far as stress emergence tests, that's something that we didn't have back all those years ago. And and I think we feel quite confident, and we're fortunate enough at Eau Claire, uh, Wisconsin, and also at Atwater, Minnesota, to have some of our stress emergence sites that give us the confidence on some of these products. And then we are. Particular about the uh, the the seed that we bring in here that we know is, is testing well um, and, and is going to be suited for some of those challenging conditions. And so, uh, you know, I think that's that's what I saw uh, this year. And people always talk about uh, that chilling injury, and it is a real thing. Um, but the ability to predict it with any certainty, uh, it just is not. Just is not there, Ashley. So, uh, you know, and, and so as we look ahead to you know next year, uh, you know, something to keep in something to keep in mind, Ashley. But uh, mm. you know, I think we should probably move on and and talk about uh, you know number uh, number six on the list, and that was uh, iron deficiency chlorosis and uh, soybean cyst nematode, Ashley. And we we had a podcast. Uh, This summer with uh, field agronomist Brent Larson, who's out in the western part of the state, went into a lot of detail talking about IDC. But Ashley, maybe you can share some of your observations and contributing factors that actually maybe tie in both, you know, conditions conducive to iron deficiency, chlorosis, but also uh, calling out uh, soybean cyst nematode and and the role it can have in, in maybe further compounding some of those things.
0: Oh, absolutely. So this was in addition to, you know, our last topic. This was a really huge learning for me this year, as we had more IDC in my area than than I've ever experienced um, in in my career. And I, and talking with customers, largely on my west side. You know, I I go east and west of uh, I-35, largely as I got into Waseca and Faribault counties, uh, Faribault County, and then Blue Earth. Uh, that's where the bulk of the IDC occurrence historically is based on those soil types and and pH levels, and and that persisted this year. And I did have some um, occurrences of of IDC to the east of thirty five two that was worse than usual. Um, and so some things that that we were curious about that we were able to follow up with using um, soil test was what was driving this um, intense IDC symptom in varieties that have historically had above average tolerance to IDC. And and in doing that, we were able to learn some things. So an example that I'll share is west of New Richland, in between Waldorf and New Richland, we have a, a farm that we've worked with over time that we understand the needs of that farm, really high pH Areas need a, a variety with above average IDC tolerance, so we really understand the needs of that geography. It's it's not a surprise um, to have IDC, and and we place accordingly. So we had a variety in there, uh, P seventeen a eighty seven E's that has historically been a very good IDC variety, and that started to flash as we got into the the middle part, latter end of June, and so we had that interveinal chlorosis symptoms, um, and 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 in doing in seeing this, we we realized we needed to learn a little bit more because the customer was disappointed. And that that ranged into more customers having this question as we realized how big the IDC presence was going to be. So we took a soil sample in the area where the beans were yellowed and, and stunted and then took a soil sample just adjacent where the beans were healthy. And what we found there was that the pH was higher, um, so seven point nine in the poor area versus seven point three. But arguably, seven point three is still a high pH. Um, and then, interestingly, the the soil nitrate levels were higher, so a fourteen point two in the poorer area and a five point one in the um, less poor area. And then, finally, we also took a sample in these two spots, comparing soybean cyst nematode presence and the presence in the poorer area resulted in a value of 4625 eggs per 100 uh, cubic centimeters of soil um, versus in the healthier 863 eggs so that that became as as we looked throughout examples in the territory not necessarily samples we pulled but feedback from crop consultants in the area as they had investigated similar situations they were also returning um, high levels of soybean cyst nematode presence. So, we know those two can work together and that soybean cyst nematode reproduce really well in high pH areas. So, over time, we can see higher levels of soybean cyst nematode in those high pH areas. So, we really need, in a perfect scenario, a variety well-suited for both of those needs. Um, but, Jay, you had some other great examples. Can you share those?
1: Exactly, Ashley. And, and you know, be, before I do that as well, just kind of talk about you know, the things that make reference to our conversation with Brent, because, you know, Ashley talked about, you know, soil pH. And then and she talked about soybeans as nematode. But I think, again, so much of what we saw this year was compounded by the dry weather and the drought. And so Ashley talked about these nitrate levels and say, so, um I mean, we have a year where we have less water. We're not going to leach those nitrates through the soil profile. And so they're going to accumulate near the surface. The same holds true with carbonates, which can be a compounding factor um, with um, iron deficiency chlorosis. And so we had several of those factors lining up, let alone then adding fuel to the fire was the the population of soybean cyst nematode. And uh, Ashley was kind enough to line up a uh, a field for me to do a trial looking at initial and final populations of soybean cyst nematode down in the uh, Wells area, uh, east of Wells. And uh, I was fortunate when I came back to the plot in the fall that the sales rep wanted me to take a look in an area of the field, that um, he had uh, the same variety, 17A87Es, alongside 18A73Es. And normally you would have expected the 17s to handle the IDC better than the 18s. And so uh, Jason Garvick, who's a sales rep, took me out to that part of the field and as close as possible to the line between the two varieties I sampled for uh, SCN in the 17A87s and then also in the 18A73s. And when the final results came back, um, the 18A73s, which by the way, an important part of this is that they're a Peking variety had 825 eggs per 100 cc's of soil, as opposed to the 17887s, which had 13,653 <laughs> eggs per 100 cc's of soil. So so again, folks, the, the point is just the impact that soybean cyst nematode pressure can have, that additional stress can have an impact iron deficiency chlorosis. And in this case, made a variety that normally should be a stronger performing variety under IDC, actually perform less. And, and so, you know, I've had a number of conversations with other farmers telling me, gosh, I planted those 18A73s on that piece where you would normally have some alkaline. Gosh, they looked absolutely great. And, you know, lo and behold, it's somebody that hasn't planted a Peking bean on that ground for years. And it's just the power of Peking. So, you know, what they perceive to have been an iron chlorosis issue, with may which may be because 18A73s are no slouch on their own, but just the, the added effect of having a, a decent bean for IDC and team with Peking. King. And, and we've seen that time and again this year, Ashley. And you know, I mean I think that just makes me excited looking ahead to the future here too.
0: Oh, me too. You know, as you as you mentioned that, um, I had two things that I was thinking of. You know, we've we've had the opportunity to learn about our new varieties. Like Jay has mentioned, we'll have more peaking coming forward. And I was just looking at my notes. So we have fifteen new Z series soybean varieties that will be advanced and appropriate for planting in our area. Um, at, and we'll get to know these beans as we get into twenty twenty four. Eleven out of those fifteen are peaking source of soybean cyst resistance. So that's really phenomenal, particularly as you bridge with the performance of 18A73s. And one of those um, new varieties that we have this last year, the 14A12s J, that are available for planting in 2024, uh, those have good IDC tolerance, but also a peaking source, source of cyst resistance. So if you have a farm that is particularly troublesome on both those, the 14A12s would be a, a wonderful variety to accommodate both of those needs. And then I just had a another one, Jay, that I was thinking about. I had gotten this question, um, and I I did a little research into it to make sure I was I was fresh on this information. So I, I got the question of, well, what's up with these wheel tracks in these areas of of IDC pre, uh, presence? And then you see the wheel tracks with the the nice green beans. And and so then I had I previously understood. Okay, well, we compact that area and we have. Um, less, uh, it becomes a an anaerobic environment without um, the the flow of of um, you know the soils being packed, so you don't have as much air movement, and it's not as good of an environment for microbial activity. So then you restrict the amount of mineralization that's happening there, so you you don't have quite as high of a nitrate level um as would be in an area that's not restricted but then i was thinking well what what's up with these nitrates you know exacerbating idc and so Jay, i i was reading about this and and what i read was that as the soybean variety brings in nitrates it will bring in if there's nitrates available it will be bringing in nitrates Despite the fact of maybe it doesn't need all those nitrates that it's bringing in, and this is layman's terms, I'm really you know pulling it down. But then in doing so, it produces more carbonates and 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 in the root exudates, and then thereby increasing the local pH, so creating an environment that's that simulates an IDC or a high pH area. So I thought that was really interesting because we know that the root exudates are really important. Um, to break down the iron into a a form that's consumable by the um, soybean because the iron as it exists in the soil is not consumable. It has to be broken down by those root exudates, And those uh, high pH areas are unfriendly to these root exudates, And that's why then higher, super high um, seeding rates are a management tactic for addressing IDC. They can work together. Um, So that was my I, I dug into that, Jay, so I wanted to share because I thought that well, was that is pretty. That
1: is very interesting, Ashley. The you know because there it's such a common question out there. Folks asking about asking about those wheel tracks and and, and why you why you see that. And since as long as my. As, lo- as long as I've been with Pioneer, that's always been the question. Why are those wheel tracks green? So, Ashley did a good job of ex- explaining that. And, you know, I made reference a couple times here to our previous podcast where we we devoted an entire podcast to that. And so, Ashley, I was just looking that up. That was uh, July 10th, so that would have been episode 42. And so, you know, it's a great one for the winter months because that one ran on a little long. That was an hour and 11 minutes. So, great, great listening. You got a road trip in the winter here. Maybe you're going west snowmobiling or going north ice fishing, wherever it might be. Put that on and and listen to that, and you can hear a little bit more about uh, iron chlorosis and, and really in-depth and in detail with uh, Brent Larson. So, uh, Ashley, we're uh, – we're we're at a critical point here. Do we want to continue on with the uh, number five or are we going to hold that off for next oh, week?
0: Let's yeah. let's let that be a cliffhanger, Jay.
1: That sounds good. We <laughs> will hold off until uh, next week, Ashley, maybe before we we wrap up this episode, maybe just kind of, if you can wrap up on, on some of the kind of the high points of our discussion this morning, and uh, then we'll wrap up the show.
0: Oh, absolutely. So in on the topic of cool soils, key takeaway as we're moving into subsequent corn planting seasons, be cognizant of the stress emergence score, or if you're working with another um, seed supplier, there might be a different uh, language for that emergence score, um, early planting suitability, that type of, of observation, be cognizant of those scores as you um, have opportunities to plant in windows where the moisture conditions are appropriate, but the soils are cool. Those those do those scores provide you great guidance. And uh, speaking on behalf of our brand, we put a lot of effort into making that a score for which you could make decisions off of. So that would be my my summary of of that uh, planting into cool soils observation. And then on the IDC component, uh, variety selection is key. And then paired with the IDC tolerance, if you're able to switch up your um, soybean cyst nematode activity and instead of using a PI88, 788 source of cyst resistance, which is represented in most commercially sold soybean varieties, look for an opportunity to plant a variety with a peaking source of cyst resistance. At one time, if you wanted a peaking, you were going to give up a lot of yield as peaking was newly introduced into the opportunity to be um, planted in our area. And now, as we look at our peaking soybean varieties, you're not giving up yield and you're picking up important agronomic characteristics. So a management tactic to think about going forward, Jay. um, All right. Well, that's what I have. Anything to add or you want to close this out?
1: Ashley, there's been a ton of conversations, a lot of buzz since harvest about Soybean cyst nematode, and uh, I've been really digging in to to just even broaden my uh, broaden my knowledge base. And you know, there there's there's two things that that enter into that. And I think we're probably going to have to have a show exclusively devoted to soybean cyst nematode management as we get come come closer to spring. But of course, one of the questions is, say for instance, that field that I had taken those samples from in your area, Ashley, where we had twelve thousand x number of uh cysts per 100 cc's of soil eggs per 100 cc's of soil the question always comes up okay so what effect does a corn rotation have on those populations then you know and so um you can see a range of uh impacts Uh, You have a non-host crop in corn out there. Um, It can be, you know, typically it probably ranges somewhere by reducing those numbers a third to a half of what they were going into that corn year, depending on a a number of environmental conditions. And then you get your biggest bang for the buck with that rotation the first time you do that. And the point being, if you were to go another year of corn right behind that, so go corn on corn, you're not going to get another 30 to 50 percent. Your biggest bang for the buck is that. Is that first year um, out, of, out of the shoot as far as those impacts on soybean cyst nematode. And then the final point too, you know, in, in reference to your comment about um, yield on, on Peking varieties, and certainly uh, our breeders have done a great job using some mar- marker-assisted selection techniques to ensure we have a full Peking complement of resistance expressed and there previously had been some agronomic limitations. But as I listened to another uh, podcast with a nematologist from Iowa State talking, he said also part of that is uh, Peking's getting a boost because nematode populations out there are getting so bad. (laughs) They've gotten so high over time, with the overuse of 8.8788, so any yield drag that there could have been associated with peaking is no longer there because we got nematode pressure so intense. And so I just wanted to add those couple of things. And listeners i think you should look for later this winter for us to have a guest on and we will spend the entire time talking about soybean cyst nematode so i'm sure you're all waiting with bated breath for us (laughs) to come out with that podcast Uh, but it will be exciting and interesting because um the impacts of cyst nematode were quite broad and extensive this year um so lest i go on any longer ashley i think it's time to close out the show Listeners, you can follow the podcast now on Twitter. The The show handle there is at YFO Agronomy, or you can follow me personally. My handle is at Zeke And Ashley, where can listeners find you other than at a wrestling tournament in Northern <laughs> uh, Iowa?
0: A wrestling tournament near you. You can also find me at, at Ashley Storby.
1: Folks, you can join us on our next episode as we continue our 2023 Agronomy Top 10 series. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 54 of Your Field is Our Office. Be safe and stay healthy.